and welcome to Need for Speech. Folks, today I have a rather special guest with me. Quite simply, the person who coined the term Sensex. A chemical engineer from IIT Kanpur, who later did a postgraduate management degree from IIM Calcutta, Deepak Mohoni has been in the markets since the late 1980s. Deepak, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Let me just kick this off by asking, what's the market? Kya lagta hai? Well, it's still a bit of a bull market, but uh, not all stocks are doing very well. And it'll probably remain this way until something goes wrong in the US, because that's really the driving force for us. So this is like one of the textbook answers that like, you know, everyone gives. Like, when I, because even I am asked the question, like, market ka lagta? And this is one of the very textbooky answers that like, just everyone like, gives. Just keep investing. That's it. Yeah, the, uh, that's usually true for all times, not just now, because you should just remain invested in the market unless they, you are into a really bad bubble and things are looking uh, like they can only go down from there, from a bubble, not elsewhere. Otherwise, the market is pretty unpredictable and it is best to stay invested, otherwise you'll miss the rallies. So, uh, Deepak, tell us about you know, your career path from being a chemical engineer from IIT Kanpur and then IIM Kolkata and then you also did some software development work and then also finance journalism and uh, now you have uh, Trendwatch India. So, so what is that journey like from a chemical engineer to where you are now? Well, I got the degree in chemical engineering but I joined IIM Calcutta immediately after graduation. So I didn't get a chance to practice chemical engineering except in the labs. Um, because once you are in an IIM or any management course, you essentially have to uh, put the engineering degree in the background. Uh, though it of course helps in uh, the ability to analyze things generally and to solve numeric problems very quickly. And um, after IIM actually, I got into, I had done a lot of courses in software. Uh, it, it was pretty early days then, but um, even in IIT and IIM, I took every elective on um, computer courses that was available. And as a result, when I took my first job with um, uh, Bharat Petroleum, as it is now called, it was Burma Shell uh, changing to Bharat Refineries at, on the day I joined. They, uh, for the first two years, put MBAs through um, jobs like uh, internal audit and systems and so on, so they learn about the company. And in that process, I got involved with software as a, as a uh, job. And after two years in BPCL, I joined Tata Burroughs, uh, who are now Tata Unisys. And uh, they, that was obviously a complete software company. So since then, I've really been in software, not so much finance. And um, after two years with uh, Tata Burroughs, I started doing projects directly for um, companies abroad, uh, actually for Burroughs abroad, for another five, six years. On returning to India, I had developed some software for a stock market publication. And as a result, I got into stock markets and somehow I got into writing columns. And that's, that's where I got into the market part of it. So uh, Deepak, tell us about, you know, how did you coin the term Sensex? Because earlier it was the BSC sensitive index. And now, uh, while referring to the markets, people like even in mainstream news, people just say like Sensex just rose by so many percentage points or, or whatever. So, so how, how, tell us the story of, behind that. Okay, so what really happened was um, I started my first column, I think it was 87 or thereabouts, with uh, Business World, and after, uh, which was a fortnightly. And after writing two or three columns, the term BSE sensitive index was very cumbersome. So I uh, checked with the editor if he was okay with my um, using a shorter form for this uh, index, and that's where the Sensex came in. It was one of three or four different possibilities, you know, you could have called it Sendex. 
Well, I'd come up with a list, and uh, we sort of homed in into Sensex, which had a nicer ring about it. So that's how it came down to the discovery. So, uh, so tell us a bit about like what were the Indian markets like back in the in the late 80s, because there wasn't much of investor awareness as much as there is right now. I mean, we were still in the pretty nascent stage. I don't think NSE was even there, BSC was there, but. Uh, you had a lot of big players coming in, I, not a lot of retail investors in the markets. And do you have any particular anecdotes from back in the day? And just tell us about the market back then. Well, the market was very much active and there were a lot of investors and traders over there. And uh, they generally did better than people do now. Um, because the focus, I think, was more on longer term trading, though there were short term traders as well. Um, those were the days of floor trading, so there was no electronic board. And uh, there used to be a chalkboard which somebody used to update. I think that's the way it ran. Uh, and you had to be in the exchange to get the rates or speak to your broker on the phone. Uh, otherwise, um, it was pretty good fun because, you know, you hung around that, uh, the stock exchange if you were a trader and, uh, or sat in the broker's office and did your trading. So it was, in a way, far more social <laughs> since you interacted with other players and picked up tips. Um, and if you're lucky, you could go down to the floor and talk to the jobbers. So it was a very different time. But um, the underlying uh, market was not so different as it is now. And we've always been in bull markets. Actually, if you look at it, all markets are always in bull markets in the sense that there is some sort of a gain or a very small loss on most years. It's only when there is a really bad crash that uh, stocks get affected for a year or so. And that was the case in um, those days as well. There was a, a nice sort of appreciation almost every year, then a bubble in 92, and uh, that was the Harshad Mehta bubble. And after that, a big crash. That was the first of the three large bubbles we've had since then. So you just mentioned uh, Harshad Mehta, and uh, you were an active participant in the market during the time of the Harshad Mehta scam. So can you give our listeners a brief you know, overview of what it exactly was? And you know what are the market conditions like? What was the talk going around on the street, as they say? The whole thing really began with um, uh, the budget, Manmohan Singh's budget, which uh, brought in liberalisation. Uh, leading to the budget, India had got into pretty dire straits that time. They, we were selling gold in order to meet the spending requirements of day-to-day uh, -day government. And uh, after that came in the reforms. The reforms didn't really come by themselves. But they were there and people were pretty excited about it. And that really sparked off the bubble. The economy obviously was in pretty dire straits at that time because we had been selling gold. Um, so the, the entire bubble was caused purely on the basis of um, the future looking bright. There was nothing much in the present to rave about. And that's really the making of any bubble. And Harshad Mehta became a bit of a catalyst. I think during bubbles, people need a theme. And he became the theme because he used to give a lot of press interviews. He was pretty eloquent. He would push up stocks. He was also involved, as it turned out later, and, uh, well, a lot of people spoke about it then, in uh, various deals he made with bankers and uh, other uh, entities, which um, gave the uh, market a bit of an extra push and, I suppose, enriched him at that time and others. So, um, so I think a lot of laws were broken during that uh, bull run. And a lot of laws which came to being later didn't exist that time because it's from the learning of um, what happened during that bubble that the system became stronger and improved. But the mood was very upbeat. I mean, everybody was just looking for tips um, from anybody else. I mean, you just mentioned to any stock to anybody and the guy would go and rush and buy it. 
it, it was that sort of mood. Then you had the people who were the Burma bears who uh, would say that this rally is unwarranted, which was actually true if you look at fundamentals. And they would keep short selling against the, uh, against the trend and uh, they got badly hurt. Um, I don't think there were too many people who were lucky enough to take their first shot, first shot I should say, uh, just at the end of the bubble because those people would have been enriched. There are stories that some brokers and some traders made a lot of money during the crash, but um, I, I don't really know of any particular people who did that. And also, uh, coming to your point about you know, legislation being late, SEBI was formed like much later, and I mean, like the whole regulation that needed, uh, that the market needed, was kind of an afterthought, if, if you would agree with that. Yes, most, most uh, uh, legislations involving markets and the industry come after the event. We had so many of them in, uh, with the 2008 crash. The US came with the uh, Dodd-Frank uh, rule, I think, after the, after the crash. Also, there was a Volcker rule which came after the 1990 crash. Both of these, incidentally, have been removed by Trump. So I think um, there is the, the scenario is pretty good for the formation of another bubble. Uh, so Deepak, you've also been like one of those active media persons in the sense that you wrote a column in the early 90s and you wrote many columns for many publications in fact and uh, I mean you were kind of creating awareness to the general public as such of what is happening in the markets, what technical analysis is and you've always been a media savvy person. So, so what is that kind of like, so yeah, can you just tell us about the media savviness uh, back in the day and even like what continues now? I got into this media thing by accident. I'm really more of a software person. That's what I'm focusing on now. Um, the, I needed the software to come up with the analysis, which, was, uh, which is where the, there is a common ground between uh, software and uh, analysis of markets in, and on media. Um, I got into uh, publications, really. Business, Standard, business World was the first, and then um, I was also doing a column for the economic times. I was also making the entire stock market pages uh, for one or two publications, the independent short-lived publication, but uh, right from day one, Vinod Mehta had got me to do that part of it. So that was very much software. So you see, there's always been a software connection. I was also making the business page for the pioneer, the entire stock market quotations page, basically. So from time to time, I have done that as well. Uh, television came on much later, so since I was doing all these columns, they roped me in and um, I was probably the first guy doing technical analysis on television, as also I suppose in mainstream media in India. Um, the, there were a lot of technical analysts around, but they were not writing for uh, any of the bigger papers or magazines, basically. That's what I mean by being the first there. Um, TV those days was not really so much technical analysis, but it was more about the markets and I would use technical analysis as uh, supporting evidence for what I really needed to say. Now it has um, evolved, uh, if that's the right word, into tips in the morning. Um, so, that, so that has also come a, uh, taken a rather different route than how it had begun. So uh, like coming to the point of tips, you know, what, are, what is your opinion? Since this podcast is all about like information and predominantly opinions, what is your opinion on the whole you know, giving tips on, on, on news channels? Because... I mean, like, I think everyone should view it with a fair dose of skepticism because pretty sure, like, whoever is giving tips has some vested interest in the stock, primarily, like, I guessing against what they are saying. But, 
I mean, what is the ethics of it, and just what are your opinions on the whole, you know, tips giving business, which, which has been kind of booming actually. I don't think, as far as the TV channels are concerned, there is any uh, hidden agenda behind those tips where um, the uh, analysts are enriching themselves by favoring a stock or two. Most of those are very heavily traded stocks and they can't influence the price anyway. Uh, but, the, uh, but from the TV channel's point of view, it's a popular show. So as a result, you know, they get the ads and the revenues from it, which is, which is really the main reason those programs are there for the tips. Um, as far as traders and investors are concerned, if you need tips to trade in the market, you shouldn't be trading at all, because, uh, or you should be in mutual funds and uh, just stay very passive. Uh, because, uh, simply because if, you don't, if, if you're following tips, you really don't know the markets and you don't know what you're doing. So um, you need to either study more or go in for a passive source of income from the markets. So, uh, Deepak, tell us about, uh, you know, who makes money in the market because I have, like, there are many stories of going around of people who have won big and people who have also lost everything in the market. So, so do only investors make money or do traders also make money or, you know, what is the, what is the kind of success rate here and what is the kind of success rate for people who are kind of, you know, wanting to do this full time? Okay, this is a difficult one to answer in many ways because one would need access to everybody's... Uh, personal data. Uh, but from what I've made out is the people who made a lot of money in the market and uh, they have done it purely by investing long term. They um, investigate a stock or company. I think they, their success really begins with one company uh, where they, which they come to know the business extremely well. Uh, they may or may not know the promoter, they may or may not know the industry, but they somehow figure out the company and um, do a lot of hard work to identify it, I should add and uh, then sort of get into it and then they get a, a major bull run like the bubble time where stock goes up 10, 15 times and then there is no looking back. Even the great Rakesh Junjunwala, I believe, uh, started that way with Sesa Goa. Um, so, and after that there was no looking back. Um, but they, they are all buy and hold stories. Now they may trade a bit on the side but their real um, gains have come from buying and holding. And holding um, very tightly, that means you don't keep reacting to every piece of news and uh, deciding to do something because of it. Those are, those are all the people I know who have made money have done it by long-term holding. Short-term traders who do not seem to have gone bankrupt have other sources of income or are also long-term investors and their money comes from there. But otherwise, uh, most of the people who have gone into trading full-time, um, the few I know have probably survived for maybe a year, year and a half until they ran out of cash for trading. So, um, so I, I don't think trading uh, by itself is likely to be very profitable. Also having spoken to two or three very large trading houses, the heads of those houses, um, they have, I'm not taking names, but they have very candidly told me that uh, 95 to 97 or 99% of their traders' clients are in the red. Uh, since you have had so much of experience in the markets and just, you know, being around money, I'm sure you must have you have noticed some money trends and some shifting of patterns. So say in the earlier days, we had a lot of money in fixed deposits, uh, real estate and gold. But then in the early 2000s, the whole mutual funds things came in. A lot of money flowed into the stock markets. And even like uh, two years ago, we had the mutual fund Sahih Hai 
campaign, which was all about you know increasing market participation, just getting people to put money from their bank accounts to a DMAT or something, and uh, just increasing investor participation. Well, yes, uh, that's really a success of marketing. I mean, if you look at it at the end of the day, you know, you see those companies here. I think those campaigns are still on. Uh, I saw it during the cricket matches. So um, those, those kind of campaigns do lure people into the markets. Um, and there is a lot of untapped wealth in uh, non-market uh, instruments. So that is why the mutual funds and all uh, advertise so much to get people to part with a little bit to get into the, into the markets. So that part of it is um, a success of um, advertising, I would say. As far as voluntarily shifting to markets, uh, that happens usually during bubbles. Uh, it always comes down to bubbles at the end. When you have a massive market rally, people who've been sitting on FDs and gold and real estate, they start worrying that they're not making enough money because they keep hearing these great stories of how a stock went up fivefold in one year or, or even three, four months. And then they want a piece of the cake and uh, that also fuels the bubble as well as gets them into the market, uh, much to their regret a bit later. But I think most people who've got into the markets have been, um, uh, th there, is a, there is a very high traffic of new entrants into the market during bubbles. That's, that's, the, that's a bigger, bigger piece of marketing than any advertising would ever do. Um, but otherwise, I think there is probably a slight shift towards uh, uh, mutual funds. I don't know the numbers, but uh, people do tend to own mutual funds now. At one time, they didn't. There are also a lot more mutual funds now anyway. Plus, uh, there's a lot of direct selling from the mutual funds. Uh, half of them are owned by banks. So your uh, bank account also gets you, makes you a victim of uh, phone calls where they say, put some money into this instrument or that. The RM will come and sit with you and say, why don't you try this scheme? So like that, there is a lot of push towards it. It's, I don't think it's coming from within. It's coming more from marketing. But marketing does cause shifts, and um, that's probably happening here as well. Okay, as far as investing in gold and uh, fixed deposits is concerned and real estate, um, fixed deposits you are probably this, are safer than uh, today than debt instruments because of all the ILFS and various other issues going on. I think even globally there are problems now with the debt market. So a mix, pure mix of equity and uh, cash is probably best. And cash is safest with big solid banks with no um, exposure to uh, uh, you know, the sort of instruments which are going very bad right now. So uh, that's probably not a bad mix. So you do need FDs at any point of time, even though the interest returns are low. You make up for that by being in stocks, which are volatile, but give you higher returns in the longer run. Gold is, um, gold is a funny sort of instrument. In India, it's used, because it's really not volatile most of the time, it's a good proxy for uh, the exchange rate because um, the number of the uh, dollar exchange rate is roughly linked to the price of gold as long as gold doesn't make dramatic moves. So if you want to um, sort of insure against the rupee weakening, which would weaken your savings, gold is there. But these days the rupee doesn't really fall that much, so I don't think gold is very useful in that regard anymore. But I, I think like gold also has a lot of sentimental value like in Indian culture and, and it's, it's, it's been a part of like everyone's lives for a, a long time. Well, there's a generation shift here now. So people are looking at the utility of uh, whatever assets they can get hold of. And I think the younger generation may not be so enchanted by family gold. They, they might want to convert it to something more useful. That's my guess. I don't really know about 
um, how they think. But um, in the past, that was certainly the case. Real estate is another um, um, interesting question because <clears throat> real estate, as we know, has been in the doldrums now lately. Um, and if you buy a house as an investment and rent it out, you're going to get a return of less than a percent annually. So that's a pretty useless um, investment that way. Uh, it doesn't appreciate very much more uh, these days. Um, and in any case, flats rarely ever did unless you had owned them for a very long time. Um, real estate, probably your best bet is to find some piece of land in some rural area which you think is going to get urbanized fairly soon and uh, when the boom comes, you um, get in there. But otherwise, right now, real estate is pretty much out of favor. But at the same time, there have been real estate booms as well now and then, quite often coinciding with um, uh, stock market bubbles. I mean, stock market bubbles have often been asset bubbles. Everything goes up. So, <clears throat> so there, there could be longer-term value in real estate, but... Um, you can't trade it short term anyway. Uh, buying and selling itself will cost you about 10-15% of the value. So it's, um, it's a tricky sort of uh, decision to make. So Deepak, uh, tell us like, what advice do you have for a 25-year-old you know, who's just starting with their job and probably has their first paycheck? Where should they invest their savings? Because I get this question a lot. It's, um, it's a, actually being 25, the biggest asset is that time is on your side. So as a long-term investor, you couldn't do better than starting at 25 uh, because ultimately it's the cumulative returns. Um, so the answer is yes, you must be, whatever money you can save, put it into the stock market. Uh, especially if you have folks who can bail you out of a crisis. If, if you think you may need uh, spare money or you are supporting the folks or something, then obviously you'll have to put some part of your salary into FDs or uh, to build up a bit of a fund um, for other purposes. But whatever is bearable, just put it in the market and also set for yourself a fixed percent on day one of your salary, uh, which goes into the market. Otherwise, you'll end up spending it. Um, as the higher, the better. I mean, there is no, I can't recommend 10% or 20%. If you can put 90% in the market, put 90% in the market. What this will do is that you will be uh, playing against uh, all random factors because you are investing every month. So there are going to be good months, bad months, uh, fantastic months, extremely poor months. But uh, each, each bit of money you put into the market is averaged out. Uh, and most of the months you find the market is on an average probably gaining. So you come out way ahead. Now you need to invest and stay invested and not bother too much about what the market is doing. So if you're really good at analyzing stocks, I mean, if, if your education has been in finance and you've studied books on the side and you really know what you're doing and you can backtest and find out that these kind of stocks give best long-term returns, then build your own portfolio by all means. You know, have at least 10, 15 stocks and just keep adding money to the same stocks. Uh, now, this is obviously not something everybody will find themselves doing. So... Uh, then you could go in for a mix of mutual funds. But again, you have to, in some ways, um, analyze the mutual funds. You want to find out mutual funds which are not fair weather friends, which only go up when the markets are rising. Best way to gauge mutual funds is how badly they fell when the market had a substantial decline. If they seem to do well in those situations or not fall as much as their peers, then I think you've got a good mutual fund. You also probably need to find out if the mutual fund manager is the same who managed it when they had a really good performance. So I myself never invested in mutual funds, so I don't want to really rant too much about this. But I would imagine that mutual funds which approximate the market should give you an okay return. Um, ETFs is, uh, is obviously very, they are very popular in the US and have beaten the markets there. And they should be 
probably so so uh, can you just tell us what exactly are etfs etfs are exchange traded front funds they um, the, the job they're they're passive in the sense that there is no research or anything involved so you need much less manpower to run it all they need is really a computer which um, replicates um, the market by having a mix of stocks which is similar to the index or whatever they want to replicate in the market so it has a predictable value i mean it's predicted by what the market does uh, it it won't have returns different from the market and um, uh, so they are cheaper because they need less manpower they won't have uh, any bad decisions uh, driven into them like you could find in a mutual fund if, but of course if the market goes down the etf also goes down um the only catch here is that they i don't think they have really picked up very much in india the etfs are not among the most heavily traded instruments so uh, and also the people who run the etf with so many funds and houses in india companies getting into a bit of a spot these days you got to also look at who's running that etf so i think there's not much incentive for a fund house to run a, run an etf either because they don't earn much from it like like anyways but as an investor it it is a really good deal no they earn a lot from it because they do earn something from it a uh, minuscule amount but they uh, they get huge volumes once it picks up so they make their money out of that because if they are the most popular instruments then they are going to be earning a lot out of it um but it's it's a it's a volume sale thing as i said i don't know yet the state of how etfs are faring in india they should be replicating the market of course but how sound they are or how easy it is to get in and out of them uh, that part you really don't have to worry about if you're 25 because your investments won't be so large as to move the market but um, uh, they sh- the, the one way out is have a, you know when you are in doubt about whether to choose instrument a or b or c get get a bit into all three of them then later on you can fine tune or focus more on a b or c depending on how um, your earlier investments are performing basically you start uh, you know focusing or shifting more funds into what has done best so uh, that that could be one strategy going ahead but the main thing is to remain invested not keep getting out of the market every time you get spooked by something that happens so the i think the biggest piece of advice here is continue your sip let that money flow out every month no matter what the market does and also do not look at your portfolio daily i think that's <laughs> that's also an important factor here Oh, absolutely but there is one uh, there's one and only one time that one needs to get out and that could enrich you quite a lot but that depends entirely on your ability to recognize a bubble properly because if you're 25 you haven't seen a bubble um this is when the excitement is extremely high um where everybody who has never been in the market is also wanting to get into the market all your relatives are who you never thought had heard of stocks start buying it when you have that situation you will find the whole market doubles very quickly um, at that stage it may not be bad to get fully into fts but you know it's the problem here is that you might see a bull run being uh, ordinary bull run being uh, misidentified as a bubble because uh, bubble is a term used pretty loosely by fund managers and media where um, any time an asset is inflated which happens very often people start calling it a bubble um if you want to research bubbles it can be very profitable so just look at all the news of um 2000 and 2008 and see the headlines in 2008 while the bubble was on where the stories were believed i mean it was only after the crash that people started talking about why things were all wrong then if you see the same thing happening again uh, you would be able to identify them but this is but even if you get caught in a bubble it won't matter very much because bubbles uh, there's a lot of damage and they fall very quickly also you will be buying stocks during the crash 
So the average cost of your portfolio will uh, come down uh, because you're buying stocks cheap. Uh, that's the key. If, if you're caught in a bubble, never mind. Just keep, don't change your SIP plan because then at the end of the bubble, you'll be buying stocks very cheaply. Eventually, the good stocks come back to where they were before the crash. And um, the post-bubble crash and rally, will you'll find yourself much better off than you were before the bubble or during the bubble. So as a 25-year-old, uh, you know, when you open a bank account or whatever, you'll also get the brokerage house associated with the bank account. You're just calling you and selling you products. So I think at that point of time, one of the things that you need to do is do your own research. And I haven't seen many people around me do their own research. They just buy whatever the guy tells them to buy. Yes, that's correct. They never buy any product that's marketed to you in the financial markets. So, um, because the person selling it to you makes his income out of it, he's not really concerned about how that instrument fares later. It's his job. Um, also, you have to do your own research, at least some little bit of research. You've got to find, you've got to know why you're investing in whatever you're investing in. And that's not too difficult to do. You can speak to people who've been in the markets for a long time. Good investors, not, not somebody who's uh, not got a track record at all. Um, and... Uh, or read books from that you can and then look at stock prices in the past have some idea about what you're investing in otherwise just go for some sort of a mutual fund which has a lot of blue chips in it um, but don't don't ever buy anything any product that's sold to you in the markets so that's completely a no-no and if you want to trade short term at all in the markets uh, the best strategy is not to do it at all now, if you want to do it then make sure you're investing and maybe five ten percent of the amount that you would invest you are trading with just to see if um, you are able to do something nobody else has. Uh, learning the hard way, I would call it. Um, and, and don't leverage it so that you think you are only playing with a small amount of money, but it, the exposure is actually much higher. So, and don't sell options ever. So that's, that's again, one uh, way to uh, find the road. So that's a very hotly debated topic right now because in the last two years, like many people have marketed their option selling workshops. I'm not doing any names, of course, but yeah. See, the thing with option selling is you make a certain amount of money, uh, it's guaranteed. But when, when the price movement goes um, hugely against you, which it will by the laws of probability sooner or later, it completely wipes out all the gains you have made and more. So uh, th that's, that's the reason you should avoid. I mean, you've got some, you have to look at the case study of Victor Neiderhofer. You will find uh, some good books and uh, read about him all over the net. He's there in Wikipedia. He was an immensely successful fund manager who um, basically sold options for his investors and was getting massive, massive returns. Uh, he got caught in the 2008 uh, crash and uh, was completely wiped out. He had to sell his paintings. And that's the famous anecdote everybody gives about neither offer. He's written a few books himself, which are quite interesting. Um, he, he was quite an amazing character. He was, uh, I think, the topper in Harvard, and uh, he was the US squash champion as well. So uh, as a character, you couldn't have possibly found anybody uh, better you know, as a good guy that you would want to follow. But uh, even that sort of situation goes wrong. Selling options is completely wrong. It's, useful only for institutions who own the stock. Uh, so if, if things go wrong, they have the underlying stock that they can deliver into the market. Uh, otherwise, if you are selling, uh, by selling options, they basically are betting on getting a little bit more out of the options than the appreciation and the stock price. 
So uh, those, those sort of, uh, that option um, is really being created for institutions, not for individual traders. You get deceptive gains for a, what looks like a sustainable period of time until you get wiped out. That black swan will eventually come. It won't be a black swan if, it, if you knew it was coming. <laughs> so uh, Deepak, where do you see this you know, whole financial services industry going? You know, because we're seeing a, an influx of discount brokerages, a lot of chatter about AI and robo-advisors and just, you know, fintech in, in the truest sense of the term, wherein a lot of tech innovation is being done in finance. And I think the peak example of this that Arian talks about is cryptocurrencies because it's, it's all digital money. So what are your opinions on, you know, discount broking, fee-only advisors, robo-advisors and AI and how that will kind of, you know, affect the market going forward? Okay, uh, we are in the middle of an AI revolution, there is no doubt about that. Um, a lot of new products are being invented across industries, not just the stock markets. Um, and it is, is generally headed towards replacement of humans with um, algorithms. So uh, same thing is hitting the markets. I think the, uh, you had talked about discount brokerages. They were the first manifestation of massive computerization. This is pre-AI, of course, but um, I think the early discount brokerages found that they don't really need so many people working for them. And, um, and uh, likewise, uh, their customers don't need so many human services. So with that combination, they've cut down costs and come up with discount brokerages. So, but that phase is already over. The ones who had to come in are there. Um, with AI, we've got um, new innovations coming. You mentioned uh, robo-brokerages, uh, sorry, robo-investing, uh, trading, algorithms, whatever you want to call them. So th those, those kind of products will keep coming. We don't really know yet how they will fare. Um, but uh, that is certainly a trend. Some will catch on. This is evolutionary stage, so we do not know yet where the, um, uh, how well they'll pick up with the public. Are people comfortable dealing with uh, an algorithm or do they want a real person to talk to at the end of the day? Um, cryptocurrencies is also an outcome of the AI, but not so much the outcome of markets because they have nothing to do with stocks. Um, the biggest risk in AI, to my mind, is governments. The governments are now becoming very aware of cryptocurrencies and they don't like them. So you buy something which could just be shut down next day is, is a huge risk. Um, in India, there was talk of uh, imprisoning people for 10 years for owning or trading in Bitcoin so, or any other cryptos. So given that sort of situation, um, I think especially in India, you've got to be a bit careful if you want to play around with cryptos. Um, so I, with, with the cryptos, as I said, the biggest threat is government. If the currencies become very strong and popular, they, form, uh, they create an even bigger threat for government, so they're not going to like it. As long as they're small and harmless, the governments may let them continue, but the minute they start affecting the powers of politicians, forget it, they'll be shut down before you know it. So uh, talking about cryptos becoming big, Facebook is now entering the crypto space with their new coin called Libra. And uh, it's, it's structured as a very independent kind of, you know, the headquarters is based in Switzerland after all. And uh, big governments obviously don't like because uh, fiat currency is one of the ways they can dictate uh, how the economy is run. Central banks will have no role if Libra takes over and uh, uh, central banks are undoubtedly very essential for the smooth running of an, of an economy. So, so where do you think this could go? And uh, also what are your personal opinions on 
Libra and uh, cryptos in in general, because these cryptos being so volatile, they are not really going to replace uh, your banknotes anytime soon because you need stability for that. So, just what are your opinions on on this whole space? Well, Trump has already condemned Libra and all the other cryptocurrencies in one tweet. So, um, I think that pretty much speaks of the future when he starts going against something he doesn't uh, stop very easily as we've seen now with um, many instances um, so given that I'm, I'm not sure that libra would even really take off very much or it may assume a totally different uh, uh, identity than how it's been announced because they must have already put in a lot of work so they're not going to just discard it but i'm i'm having i'm very skeptical about whether governments are going to allow these things to exist very much longer they are a very good idea, and that is that is the exact reason why governments won't allow them. For any cryptocurrency to be used by people daily, they need to be stable and not volatile. And I think that's that kind of you know defeats the purpose. Because people investing in crypto currently are investing it for the booms. I'm guessing booms and the bust, but uh, not so much as a stable thing that which you can not as a medium of transaction. Oh, it is a medium of transaction. If your account gets hacked the hacker is going to ask you for payment in Bitcoin. So uh, they have already become, uh, I suspect, a fairly popular instrument in the underground black market because it's untraceable. Uh, but there are a lot of risks. I mean, the exchanges keep getting regularly hacked. I don't know how many hacks there have been now on cryptocurrency. So uh, it's, it's a very uh, uh, dangerous instrument to own, not because of the concept, but because of the problems. One problem is, as I said, hacking, and the other is the governments. The governments are not going to allow it to become successful. You can rest assured about that, because they don't want competition. So, folks, that was uh, a really long and intense conversation about money and stocks and finance. So, now I want to ask you, Deepak, like, what are your other interests and hobbies in life, apart from money, stocks, finance? I know for a fact that uh, you are an aviation geek. But apart from that, like, what do you like? Well, I'm actually not an aviation geek. I do tweet a lot about uh, um, aviation, I suppose. I'm following some people on Twitter and some magazines. But I'd never really identified it as a hobby, per se. But there's always something interesting going on there, which is why I suppose I got into it. Plus, using apps like uh, Flight Radar 24, um, I always use that to pick up people at the airport, because you, get, um, you don't have to wait anywhere. You know exactly when the plane has landed. So, um, but those, those are, I think, just general things that you pick up on the net. Uh, communications is now so powerful and every, every piece of data is accessible. So, um, I guess my main interest would be software because I'm writing code right now to develop new products. Um, and I by accident got into more into uh, data science because I started using the libraries before the term got really popular. But, um, um, but I mean, I would say anything to do with technology is always interesting. It, uh, the information comes your way without seeking it very uh, meticulously. So that is an interest. Uh, sports, um, I support Tottenham Hotspur, so you know that keeps me occupied watching their games. Um, they never win, so you know it's um, that so near and yet so far is always a better sensation than a team that wins boringly all the time. So, um, so that's football, cricket, like any good Indian one watches it. And it's fun. Um, otherwise, not really a lot. I mean, I just uh, spend a lot of time on the computer, I have to confess. You also spend a lot of time on Twitter, like so do I. But you're also an active Twitter person. So, how, yeah, how has 
Twitter affected the way you consume information, stumble across information and just... No, I consciously make sure I don't spend too much time, but make it appear like I'm on Twitter quite a lot. So I do things like scheduling tweets sometimes, uh, not very often now. Now I've uh, preferred to just do eight or ten tweets in the morning uh, in a burst. And uh, then uh, three, four hours later, I check and respond to people who made comments. So, uh, but I hope to keep the time spent on Twitter to less than half an hour a day. And I'm mainly into Twitter to market my products once they're ready. Uh, but otherwise, but it's interesting as well. You know, one sees good conversations there. Uh, it's a bit of a hostile place, but then I don't tweet about politics at all. So I'm immune to uh, the kind of attacks people who do get find themselves into. So. Um, but but it's not it's not really something which I find very entertaining or anything like that. It's uh, it's there. It's a good source of information. You chat with unknown people for a short brief period of time. Doesn't go on too long. So it all works out uh, uh, to be fairly interesting, but not obsessive. So folks, that was a really interesting and a long conversation with uh, Deepak about money, finance, and everything in between. So just before we wrap this up. Uh, what are you currently reading and uh, what, are the, what is the media that you are currently consuming? Well, I'm um, reading and copying and pasting from PG Woodhouse almost every day to maintain a Facebook group that I've got for, uh, dedicated to Woodhouse. It's got almost 4,000 followers, so I have to keep them fed with uh, these passages. So that's a daily sort of reading. Um, I haven't read fiction now for a while, maybe three, four years at least, primarily because I have very little time for it. I used to like science, I still like science fiction books uh, the most and humor, but uh, as I said, very little time for it these days. Uh, most of the time the reading is um, analysis, news, uh, some books on software really because you know, one has to keep acquiring some new skills, so you've got to read the documentation for it. Um, that's a horrible form of reading, but it's there and it's um, unavoidable. Um, so that's, that's the reading me uh, part of it. Media-wise, my sources now are, are probably almost purely on the internet except for sports. Uh, which could also be taken from the net, but I still prefer um, the channels giving it as long as they continue to. Um, otherwise, I think I'm pretty much off uh, all TV news now completely, um, uh, or any TV entertainment programs. And the family's watching Office or one of these shows, I occasionally join and watch. Otherwise, I just sit in the background and um, you know see bits and pieces of it. I guess that's about all for media because most of it has uh, dried out and everything is on the net now. So folks, that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks a lot, Deepak, for coming on the show. And uh, where can people find you online? Right, so I'm, I'm, I guess, fairly visible, as you pointed out on Twitter, um, where my handle is Deepak Mohoni. That's my name. And it can be Googled also. And uh, thanks very much for the interview. It was very interesting, very mixed from all the usual different types of interviews one has been through. And uh, not too much of the usual question, which is, kya lagta hai? <laughs>